Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Ben Jacobs was six years old when his parents opened a restaurant called Gray Horse in Denver, Colorado. Most of my memories are of the kitchen when I throw things through the dish pit and mess around <laughs> on the floor in the back. That's, that's the gist of my, my working relationship in Gray Horse. Ben's family is from the Osage Nation in northeast Oklahoma, and they designed Gray Horse as a tribute to their culture, including the eye-catching sign. So their sign was this big, beautiful turquoise and neon pink sign that said Gray Horse American Indian Eatery. And then they incorporated Osage-style ribbon work. So my grandmother was a master ribbon worker, which is the ribbon patterns that we wear on our traditional clothing. And so anyways, they incorporated a lot of those into the small space that they had, which was basically just a walk-up counter. At that counter, Ben says, his parents invited questions in conversation about the food because it wasn't a type of cuisine most of his customers were used to eating. If you say green chili stew, most people are like, well, what is that? So you'd walk up and if you had questions, you could see the food, you could smell the food. So everything was designed right in front of you. Gray Horse only stayed open for two years and the void it left was never filled. As Ben got older, he watched the restaurant scene in Denver explode, but Native American cuisine was still underrepresented. He set out to change that. In 2008, Ben started his own American Indian eatery with his co-founder, Matt Chandra. It's called Tokabe, an Osage word for blue, and Ben and Matt serve some dishes like the ones at Gray Horse. But they're also doing something new. They source ingredients from Native American farmers and producers across the country, bringing in tepary beans from Arizona, blueberries from Maine, and bison meat from South Dakota. And they experiment with new recipes. Native peoples are the oldest cultures on the continent, but in many ways we have the youngest cuisine because we're defining it now as professional cooks and chefs. Ultimately, Takabe's menu sends a clear message. Native American foods and the cultures that produce them have survived for thousands of years, but they're also at the leading edge of today's culinary scene. Take Takabe's bison ribs. The ribs are so rich and we cook them in our own house-made bison stock, so they almost eat, get even richer from there. At Takabe, serving something like bison ribs is not just about the flavor. It's an ingredient that tells a story about a traditional way of life that was almost destroyed and is now being restored. I mean, that is an incredibly important animal that sustained us for generations. Everything we eat has a story to tell. Welcome to If This Food Could Talk, a history show for everyone who eats. I'm Claudia Hanna. Today on the show, we take a cue from Ben at Takabe and share the story behind one of his most popular ingredients, the American bison. That story comes from Jamie Murray, Takabe's biggest supplier of bison meat. Every Lakota knows that we're connected to the buffalo. There's been attempts at taking that away from us, and it's something that we need to gain back. This animal sustained Jamie's ancestors before it was almost driven to extinction. Today, his job is to grow the herd on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation and to restore the historic bond his community has with the animal. We'll be right back.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Jamie Murray is a big fan of the bison ribs at Takabe. If you are ever in Denver, man, those ribs are amazing. Amazing. But he's also one of the restaurant's biggest suppliers of bison, which he refers to using the traditional word, buffalo. You'll hear both terms in this episode. Jamie is in charge of the tribal-owned bison herd on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. And he told our producer, Reva Goldberg, it's a job he cares deeply about. The freedom, the being able to be outside and taking care of animals and get on a horse and just be you and miles of nothing, you know, or you and your family or... So much open space. It sounds beautiful. It's like breathtaking when you look and for a mile, all you see is, you know, buffalo scattered out. I mean, it kind of in your mind maybe takes you back to what it might have been like thousands of years ago. It's probably the closest we can come to envisioning what that could actually look like. Like when the calves are young is the best time because, you know, they're just, they're running around and they're bucking and playing. And I don't know if you ever heard of buffalo, but they don't like moo like a cow. They make this real deep guttural grunting noise. Like what? What does it sound like? Oh man, I don't even know how to explain it. It's kind of like a deep grunt that they make from way down deep somewhere. If you've ever seen these animals, you know how striking they are. With big, brown, shaggy heads, curved horns, and humped backs, they can be up to six feet tall and up to 2,000 pounds. Bison are in the bovine family, but unlike cattle, bison are indigenous to North America. Jamie grew up learning to treat bison with special respect. It's like almost a spiritual type feeling, you know, uh, to look at them and see their power and their grace and to know what they meant to our people. And our creation story, our emergence story involves the buffalo. We're oral history type people, you know, we didn't really have a written language. So um, that's how our stories were passed on. Jamie's referring to a Lakota creation story that begins way back before human beings walked the earth. People existed in a spirit world, waiting for the Creator to make the earth ready. One group of people got impatient. They used a portal in a place called Wind Cave in western South Dakota to emerge into the world. And their decision had consequences. And as a punishment, the Creator turned them into buffalo. When he told the rest of the people it was time to come out and emerge out of the cave and They came up to this new world, and they were like, how are we supposed to live here? How are we supposed to survive? And he pointed to these tracks in the snow that were buffalo tracks, and he said, follow them. They'll provide everything you need to survive. And from the beginning of time, our people survived by following the buffalo. They provided everything for us, from food to shelter to tools to to everything. So, I mean, our our relationship with the buffalo... uh, is as far back as we know. We think of as our brothers. 
there's been attempts at taking that away from us, you know, and I guess it kind of worked because they they pretty much eliminated them to the point where they truly faced extinction. For over 10,000 years, the bison shared North America with Native Americans who relied on the roving herds, especially in the Great Plains, an expanse of land that stretches from Texas up to Montana and into Western Canada. There may have been as many as 60 million bison in North America before European colonization. After that, the relationship between indigenous peoples and the bison started to collapse. As white settlers killed and displaced Native Americans over hundreds of years, they also shot large numbers of bison. By the mid-19th century, hundreds of thousands of the animals were being killed in the U.S. each year for their hides and for their tongues, which were considered a culinary delicacy. Thousands more were gunned down just for sport. And some U.S. Army generals encouraged the slaughter of bison when they were fighting tribes in the Northern Plains because destroying this food source gave the army an advantage in battle. Native Americans were also driven away from the lands and animals that had sustained them, forced to live on reservations and to assimilate into European culture. And I think as a Lakota man, it's even more powerful just knowing the history and what that animal meant to our people and how far we've come to try to get back to this point. Jamie says the herd he manages today on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation started in 1976 with just a few bison. And then, in the early 1990s, members of his tribe joined an organization called the Intertribal Buffalo Council to advocate for returning bison to Native American tribes. We were one of the six or seven tribes that got together and formed that group. And today, we're probably, I don't know if we're the largest tribal herd, but we're pretty darn close if we're not. So far, the council has helped relocate 20,000 buffalo to Indigenous American communities. Just last fall, Jamie's herd received 19 new calves from Grand Canyon National Park. The more his herd grows, the more it advances that relationship to the sacred animal. Every Lakota knows that we're connected to the buffalo, but until they've experienced that physical connection of actually being right there and seeing one or or butchering one or just being around them, you know, it's a connection that we lost over the years and and it's something that we need to gain back. So a lot of what we're doing today, I think, is trying to rebuild that. After the break, we'll hear how Jamie's making that happen. Welcome back. We're talking with Jamie Murray, the CEO of the Cheyenne River Buffalo Company. Jamie has grown the company's herd from 400 to 2,500 in just five years. And he's making sure the bison have enough space and food to just do what they do. Not bother them too much. (laughs) Make sure they have food to eat, you know, like... In the wintertime, when the snow gets deep, we'll supplement, feed them. We just want to keep them healthy, you know. We don't want them out there having to forage too hard if they don't have to. I mean, they're very good at it, providing for themselves. But when the buffalo thrive, our people will thrive. 
Jamie explained to our producer, Riva, that another part of restoring the connection to the buffalo is reserving some bulls for what's called a field harvest and other rituals that are important to the Lakota people. It always starts out with prayer. A lot of uh, burn sage and smudge and smudge the rifle that they use, pray for the animal. And sometimes one will identify himself. There was a old gentleman here in South Dakota that ran Buffalo that was quoted as saying, you can make a Buffalo go anywhere he wants to go. I'll give you a, one example I can think of was we did a, a harvest for a culture camp for the youth. So we actually, we loaded up a young bull. We had him in a livestock trailer, a horse trailer, and we just opened the gate and let him out. And then they were going to shoot him. Well, we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, is, is he just going to take off running? And so the shooters were already. We let this bull out of the trailer. He runs about, I don't know, 100 yards maybe. Stops and he just kind of, he kind of looks and he just turns himself and gives the, the guy like a perfect shot at him. There was no fences or anything. He could have ran for miles, but so that's kind of our belief that they give themselves to us, you know, they offer themselves to us. And what is the moment like of the shooting of the animal? When they offer themselves like that, it's it's pretty moving and you're very grateful to them. You know, it's very spiritual after that. Traditionally, you know, it's all done on the ground. We'll skin them and gut them and then they'll start to cut the parts of the meat off the liver you know we'll eat the liver raw that's a that's a medicinal thing drink the blood it's powerful medicine these traditional harvests are a way to keep the spiritual relationship with the bison alive and pass it on to younger generations but jamie is also doing something completely new with the herd that's bringing economic change Before he became CEO in 2019, the Cheyenne River Buffalo Company would occasionally sell a few bison calves to cover costs, but the herd was not profitable. Jamie believed it should be, and that the tribal-owned herd could bring opportunities and better food security to the reservation. You know, growing up here, I've just watched all these different efforts at economic development, and, you know, gaming has been a big economic booster for tribal nations across the country, but we're very remotely located. You know, we don't have an interstate highway within probably 100 miles of us. So it's never seemed feasible to our tribe to build a casino here. So, you know, I guess the personal mission for me has always been, I just want to show that, you know, we can be successful and, and we have agriculture That's one thing we're rich in. Let's let that be our economic driver. I always felt like I had this whole picture of what this would look like if we got this thing totally up and running to really capture what I would call a food system. To Jamie, that means producing enough meat to create a local, sustainable food source. The Buffalo Company is also opening its own store in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. And Jamie's team has a new program in the works that will get bison meat into school lunches at five reservation schools. 
The company also started selling their meat to retailers from Texas to New Hampshire. And then there's all the new business with some rock star Native American chefs across the country. Chefs like Crystal Wapipaw of Wapipaw's Kitchen in Oakland, California, and Sean Sherman of Awamni in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And of course, Jamie also works with Ben Jacobs at Takabe. He's the Denver chef we met earlier in the episode. Of course, I talk to Ben, if not once a week, a couple times a week about something. And because these chefs are so committed to sourcing from native producers, Jamie says they're having a ripple effect. So we've really got some momentum with the indigenous chefs, and they're great because, you know, most of my new clients with them are just referrals from other chefs. I get a few new contacts every week. So do you, when you're together with these guys, do you talk about what you're all building together? Does that come up? With uh, like Ben and Matt, it's a lot of talk about that. Like, you know, what we're trying to build. One thing on the horizon for Takabe is opening a restaurant at the Denver airport. And that would be big for Jamie's business, too. They're franchising now. So uh, as they grow, we get to grow with them, you know. And the move into Denver International Airport is going to be huge for them and us. Everyone's kind of projecting it's probably going to double, you know, what we're what we're shipping to them right now. So, Wow. Yeah, it, it's, it's going to be huge, I think. If you ask Ben Jacobs at Tokabe, that's an American food system starting to work the way it should. Ben told me what the relationship with Jamie means to him. Even though we're the cooks and he's the rancher, we just like met in the middle and, and our, our approach was very similar. The way that we treat the ingredients was the way that he treats the animals. You know, it's like ultimate respect. And for that to be able to go into a restaurant like ours, it's able to retain the story and the work that they do. Can you talk about the larger Native American culinary community? Has it changed much over the last few years? Do you kind of see where it might be going? Yeah. Uh, let's just say, you know, 15 years ago when we started, there weren't a lot of people for us to look to. There were chefs and culinarians that were doing it, but I think it was still very community-based. But I've seen so many more Native chefs and cooks. And then also you're seeing the advancement of the actual producers. You're seeing producers growing at a volume where it is something that is accessible for all of us to then be able to share these foods because we have the ingredients now. That said, Ben knows not everyone can source from a Native American producer. Even though bison meat is more common in stores and restaurants recently, U.S. producers only slaughter about 70,000 bison per year. Compare that to 125,000 cattle in just one day. And tribal-owned herds are still a small fraction of the market. But when we stop to acknowledge that we're eating native ingredients, no matter their source, Ben says we are moving in the right direction. I think as Americans, we should understand the work that we do as Tokabe is native culinarians. Yes, it's native specific, but we're an American food system. Like these are things that we should all be sharing. And I want any average cook at home to be using native ingredients the way that we would cook pasta and retain the story of it. It's really important to me. Thank you. I couldn't agree with you more. And I want some practical advice, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. I need some practical advice sure. with cooking bison. 
I tried to make some bison meatballs the other week. But I used ground bison, and I didn't use any eggs. I, I put it together with a bit of sweet potato. I, I, I think I added some oil. I fried them, and then I added an agave sauce, oh, okay. kind of like an agave glaze mm -hmm. over it. I threw it over top of spaghetti, fed it to the kids, and they all loved it. It was okay. It, <laughs> yeah. They kind of fell apart a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so I love this one because um, I'm going to give you what we do. Yeah. Um, so ground bison, wild rice, actually, within that as a binding agent and a cornmeal. And then we incorporate cranberries or dried blueberries because you get sweetness, you get tart. And so the meat just sucks that in because bison is lean. People relate a cow and a buffalo all the time because yet, sure, they look similar. Two distinctly different animals. Okay, it is leaner. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't shrink. And then we just we we bake ours off or sear them in pans and then bake them off. You get this amazing finish. Let me go one step further on that. I love the agave glaze. This is where you bring in the berries, rendering your berries down with agave. If you want, then you can add in different types of chilies or peppers or things like that, and then you glaze the top. So you're incorporating all these different elements that live like harmoniously together. That's so many different traditional ingredients in one bite. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. I am so grateful right now. I think you've come up with dinner for me for tonight. <laughs> nice. Love it. I just want to say in Arabic, we say tislimadik, which means bless your hands. And I want to say from me to you, tislimadik, because you have been making such an impact on your community. And I think that's super cool. I am very grateful for the opportunity. And thank you so much for that. You can find Ben's bison meatball recipe on our website, ifthisfoodcouldtalk.com. We'll also include a link to Takabe's online marketplace, where they sell products from native producers. Next episode, New York Times bestselling author Jennifer Eight Lee takes us with her on a search for the origins of the most popular dishes in American Chinese restaurants. During my year in China, I went all across the country. It was then I was like, oh, there's no General Show's chicken here. <laughs> like, there are no fortune cookies. There's no beef with broccoli. There's no lo mein. <laughs> there's no roast pork fried rice. Thanks for listening to If This Food Could Talk with me, Claudia Hanna. If you want to support us, you can follow If This Food Could Talk on your favorite podcast listening app. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. It's also National Bison Day on November 4th, and you can share this episode to help celebrate. You can also get updates on bonus content by following me and American Public Television on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. You can find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. Production by Reva Goldberg, Kariat Harmon, Tanner Robbins, Jacob Lewis, Claudia Hanna, Nate Toby, John Barth, and the team at Great Feeling Studios. Editing by Yasmin Khan. Sound design by Jacob Lewis and Jason Sheasley. Associate producer, Kate Hayes. If This Food Could Talk is based on an original concept by Claudia Hanna. Executive producers for APT Podcast Studios are Jim Dunford, Cynthia Fenneman, and Sean Halford. Legal by Cody Brown. Special thanks to the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU. American Public Television is the leading syndicator of high-quality, top-rated programming to American public television stations, 
You can learn more at aptonline.org.